Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. <laughs> I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our outstanding producer, Dr. Clara Mao. Say hi, Clara. Hi, everyone. We You put together a great show for us, and we have a outstanding recurring guest, Dr. Angela Wyan, here to discuss von Willebrand disease. You may recognize her name and voice from the heavy menstrual period uh, episode, back episode 40. Go check it out. Great episode. Um, but before we talk about von Willebrand disease, before we talk about heavy bleeding, let's tell you about the show. Chris, remind us what we do. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Wyand, who we are so excited to have back on the show. Dr. Wyand is a pediatric hematologist and works at the University of Michigan Medical School, where she focuses on the care of young women and girls with disorders of hemostasis and thrombosis. She is a national PI on an observational study of von Willebrand disease and was a member of the recent ASH guideline panel on the management of von Willebrand disease. Dr. Wyand reports financial disclosures of consultant gigs with Takeda, Bayer, Genentech, and Sanofi, but these relationships should not affect the educational material as we have a fair and balanced range of therapeutic options discussed. Dr. Wyan teaches us the most typical presentations of von Willebrand disease, how to interpret those pesky antigen and activity levels, and how DDAVP works for acute bleeds. I think our listeners are going to love this episode. It's chocked full of pearls, which is totally on Willebrand for us. <laughs> oh, I like <laughs> That's that one. Good. That was good. <laughs> First good one in years. <laughs> and we are ready to go. I have my Amarillo minor league baseball sod Ooh, poodles nice, nice. t-shirt on for the occasion. Uh, and we're excited to come back and bring back Dr. Angela Wyan, um, a return guest. We had a extremely popular episode on heavy menstrual bleeding. Angela, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We learned a lot, and I uh, took away a few pearls from the last ones that I'm excited to share and talk about. But before we go into the content, uh, I know that some listeners probably heard a little bit of your introduction on the last episode, but can you remind us, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe um, a one-liner and some things that you're interested in, maybe outside of medicine? Sure. So I'm a pediatric hematologist, uh, largely focused on bleeding and clotting disorders, I'm a mother of two children that keep me on my toes um, and a consumer of way too much sugar in all of its varieties, which I'm actually still enjoying despite the fact that I'm recovering from COVID. I didn't actually lose my sense of taste, which was a huge win. You are such a champ for joining us even in that post-isolation phase or maybe I'm you're still- convalescing. In the convalescent <laughs> stage. Uh, we we really do appreciate you you coming on. Um, I too, when I, I had COVID, I didn't have the loss of smell. And I think the new strain or the, the BA2, there's less anosmia. Is that anyone else confirmed that? That can be one of the pearls. I, that's what 
That's what I read on the New York Times. Or something. I can't keep up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I did have some pretty bad insomnia, and so I posted on Twitter mm, asking, and a lot of people said that that's apparently a thing. I'm hoping wow. that goes away. It's a good use of Twitter, the crowdsourcing of symptoms. But yeah, hopefully, know, right? uh, continue to feel better, and you're on the up and up. And again, thank you for 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 pushing through to to join us. It's very very kind. Let's do another question. Yeah, I have a question. Um, so I'm starting intern year soon, and I'm curious if you had to give me one piece of advice, um, what would you say for for new interns? Yeah, so I think you know, befriend the bedside nurses. They know so much, especially the ones that have done it forever, and they're just with the patients for so much more time than we are, and can see kind of the evolution of how patients, you know, are doing, which I think is difficult when you just go in and get like the HP or even if you're called to the bedside, you're just not able to spend as much time. So I feel like the times when like something bad could have happened but didn't happen, oftentimes it was like, you know, a really experienced nurse saying, something is not right. Like, can you just come look at this kid? And oftentimes it's not, you know, you might be frustrated because you're like, ugh, I have 8 million other things to do. And they don't even have like, you know, words for what exactly is necessarily going on other than like something isn't right. Um, but just to like listen to them because they're amazing and know so much. Awesome. That's great advice. Thanks. I, I think that's the best advice. And actually, Chris, a shout out to you. I remember we have a, a a colleague on Twitter who was asking for advice. And that was one of the things you had said. And I can't agree more. If you don't know what's going on, ask the nurse, what do people typically do? And sometimes they might be like, nothing. I'm just letting you know. But uh, Although that was right underneath. The, the first thing was to find out where the bathrooms are. You also very first. important. Also, <laughs> also an important tip. Food and bathrooms. Very good. Good to know where those are. <laughs> Um, so you're now in the convalescent phase and I, and I, I want to ask, like, did you have any great epiphanies while you were uh, sick and laying in bed and trying to figure out how to feel better, like about life or anything in general? Yeah. I mean, I think I've spent so long, like trying to avoid COVID and then it felt a little bit like a failure that, you know, now I had COVID <laughs> and it was definitely something where. I didn't feel like it was mild and I was super frustrated by how sick I felt. But I think it also like made me realize how difficult it must be for non-medical people because I was definitely doing a lot of like, okay, how many grams total of Tylenol can I take? And, and you know, how good do I think my liver really is? And, uh, you know, how much can I take of the ibuprofen? Like, how can I push this to the very max, right? So that I can actually swallow because my throat pain was so bad. But even with that, like, you know, being sick and not sleeping normal hours and then like forgetting, like, when did I take, what did I take last and when did I take it? And you didn't realize like why these people come in and are like in liver failure because they just have lost track, right? Or maybe, you know, the dose was 650 and they thought it was 500 and they've been taking two every six hours or whatnot. So that was actually another big Twitter controversy when I posted about the max dose of Tylenol, which people don't actually agree on apparently. That's a good one. There's, uh, we we could get into a lot of good COVID discussions. <laughs> I, I I'm stopping myself from wanting to to do a deep dive into into Tylenol dosing. Um, but I, I one because I'm excited to learn about the content, and two I'm realizing that if this because of our backlog is released in two to three months, we're we're going to have a lot of 
timely uh, references to people being like, oh, yeah, COVID. Because um, <laughs> it's totally done. Ivermectin that I took. Ivermectin that I took. And hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Didn't do anything. Uh, we're I didn't take either. Spotify. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helped support the show. So, Sam, have you ever been so ashamed looking up clinical information online, things like the specific dosage of acetaminophen or how to spell the word ophthalmology? Oh, absolutely. And have you ever been to the point where you used incognito mode to cover your tracks while you're looking this stuff up? Every single day. Well, first of all, Sam, don't be so hard on yourself. We all have gaps in knowledge and shouldn't be embarrassed. We need to normalize this. But second, that incognito search is probably not as incognito as you think. Web browsers may bank tracking your search history while you're secretly looking up things like the generic name for doxycycline. That's a really good point. But um, Justin, what is the generic name for doxycycline? Don't worry about that, Sam. Worry instead about how to make yourself invisible online. And here's how I do it. Use ExpressVPN. It turns out even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Then secret cartels could theoretically buy and sell your data to randos. One of these data points, in fact, is your IP address, and that can uniquely identify you and your location. With ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server on some faraway land. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you, harvest your data, or track down the teenage hacker at the beginning of the movie War Games. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash cribsiders and get three extra months for free. Whoa, three months? That's right. That's expressvpn.com slash cribsiders, exp R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Cribsiders. Go to ExpressVPN slash Cribsiders to learn more. Claire, you put together a great uh, episode for us. Why don't you give us our first case? Sure. So this case is about Willow Brand. Um, She's a previously healthy six-year-old girl who is coming into her pediatrician's office um, because she's been having several recent episodes of what seem like prolonged nosebleeds. Her dad says that over the past couple of months, she's had almost weekly episodes at school and at home. Um, The episodes last around 20 minutes, despite pinching her nose. And her parents have kind of tried all the tricks that they can think of. They've put a humidifier in her room. They apply Vaseline, but nothing seems to help. So when you hear that, you know, what else do you want to know? And how would you take a bleeding history for this patient? Yeah, so I think nosebleeds are hard, um, especially depending on how old the kid is. Because uh, the vast majority of kids probably pick their nose, despite you know what they may tell you. Um, so trauma is obviously you know something that often incites nosebleeds. Um, I often will ask if it's unilateral versus bilateral, because um, sometimes if it's unilateral, it could be due to like a superficial vessel that's just getting irritated and rebleeding, and those patients are more amenable to treatments like cauterization with ENT. <laughs> But basically, you know, just getting a really good bleeding history, all types of bleeding. Um, clearly, we're talking about von Willebrand's disease, which is defect of primary hemostasis. So you think of more mucocutaneous bleeding. So I kind of like imagine their whole body and kind of just go d- like head down just to make sure I'm not forgetting anything. So obviously, epistaxis, you know, how long it is, whether it's unilateral, bilateral, um, what they're doing to try to stop it. You mentioned a number of things that can be helpful, especially for prevention, like keeping it area moist. 
And a lot of times these things do tend to be seasonal, right? So if someone has allergies or maybe it's winter time when their house is a lot more dry, they may have more episodes during those times. Um, so that can be helpful to elicit as well. Because if allergies are causing them, you know, you want to treat the underlying problem. But getting all of that information and also, you know, how they're trying to stop the bleeding. Um, I think it's fascinating to hear all of the different strange ways that people stop the nosebleed, right? So, so mm-hmm. many people say like, I put pressure, but they put pressure on the very top where the bone is and that is not going to do anything, right? Or I put an ice pack on at the back of his neck and, you know, there's just, you know, the list of them goes on and on and on. So making sure that they're actually really trying to stop them um, in an appropriate way and giving them tips on that is helpful. I think it's also um, difficult with time because especially if you're having excessive bleeding from your face, it seems like a really long time, even if it's not a really long time. And I think it's the same for parents, right? Like if my kid is choking, it seems like it's 10 minutes, but it's really, you know, 30 seconds and I'm losing my mind. So I think it's tough sometimes to get a real good read on how long those episodes are lasting. Um, But after nosebleeds, I think about like the mouth and kind of bleeding with dental care, bleeding with any dental procedures. Um, Oftentimes, kids will have excessive bleeding either with eruption or exfoliation of their primary teeth. Um, So asking, you know, about a history of that. And then I think about like their kind of whole body and asking about abnormal bruising. So abnormal locations, um, anything larger than the size of a quarter, hematomas where you can have a raised bump. um, Those are all pretty abnormal. And then kind of going down. And usually we don't, you know, see a lot of GI bleeding or hematuria, um, but I do ask about those things. And then obviously my last episode, you know, thinking about periods and getting a really good menstrual history as well. Is there anything like at during, during childbirth that might give us indications like, like a circumcision or even just like the types of hematomas that we see, cephalohematomas that we see with childbirth? Would, Would those give any clues? Yeah. So definitely asking about, you know, any procedures or surgeries. And I think um, it's important to be like very specific when asking those questions too, because um, a lot of people, you know, will say no, they've never had procedures or surgeries, but you know, they had a tooth yanked out, and like the family doesn't necessarily think of that as as a procedure or surgery. Um, circumcision is a little tough just because um, BWF levels are actually raised in infants um, right after birth, and so we can't really definitively rule out von Willebrand's disease in a newborn. But it also kind of causes sometimes there to not be as much bleeding from something like a circumcision. But I definitely ask about procedures, um, you know, especially things, scary things like tonsillectomies and that sort of stuff. And for this case, I think it's a great one to talk about, you know, bleeding disorders, a six-year-old who's doing all the right things and still having persistent bleeding. For someone, if we are looking for von Willebrand's disease, not just someone who's presenting with bleeding issues, what's it? classic presentation of the illness script? Is there a specific age demographic? Is it mostly nosebleeds? Is it mostly bruising? Is it mostly heavy menstrual periods? Is it mostly something that the, the provider sees on exam? What's the classic presentation of von Willebrand's disease if there is one? Yeah, I wish that there was one. I mean, I think that um, it's really interesting. I think there's still so much we don't understand about von Willebrand's disease and von Willebrand factor. Um, I think you know, we'll have some patients, two patients with identical levels, and one of them will have horrific periods, but nothing else. And then another one, you know, also female, completely normal periods, no problems whatsoever, and just have, you know, recurrent nosebleeds that are really difficult to control. 
Um, so it's not necessarily like if you have, you know, one symptom that you're going to have them all, you know, as severely. And we definitely have some patients that tend to just tend toward a specific, you know, area of bleeding, and then others that tend to kind of bleed everywhere. And I think, you know, we think about that primary and secondary hemostatic defects of, you know, primary is more mucocutaneous, and then secondary more things like hemophilia bleeds, so bleeding into the joint or the muscles. Um, But that's not like an absolute at all. So, you know, I've diagnosed people with hemophilia, and all they have is abnormal bruising. Um, And we know that with more severe types of Lyme disease, um, like type three and other types that can have low factor eight, that you can get, you know, very similar bleeding and actually be misdiagnosed as hemophilia um, in some of these patients. Before we kind of dive into like what von Willebrand disease is, can you kind of remind us what von Willebrand factor is and what it does in, in the body? So it's basically the best protein in your body, <laughs> the most important of all. No, <laughs> um, so von Willebrand's factor is a glycoprotein um, that is actually um, instrumental in both primary and secondary hemostasis. So within primary hemostasis, you have a vessel injury and you have exposure of endothelium and von Willebrand's factor is important for binding collagen and extracellular matrix, um, as well as platelets to form that kind of primary platelet plug. Um, But it's also actually involved in secondary hemostasis. Um, So it is a chaperone protein for factor eight um, and prevents factor eight from being um, degraded or cleared too rapidly. So in patients who have more severe defects in von Willebrand's factor or specific defects in, in binding factor eight, um, their factor eight can be low as well. And do you mind running us through the different types of von Willebrand disease? There are just, there's so many of them and it's hard to keep track of them. Yes, they are hard to keep track of. So in kind of the biggest sense, um, there's three types. So type one is most common, probably 70 to 80% of patients are affected by type one. Type one is just a quantitative defect um, where you have normal von Willebrand factor and it's able to bind uh, collagen and platelets and everything and factor eight completely normally. You just don't have enough of it. And so you have bleeding secondary just to the absolute number of von Willebrand's factor molecules circulating. Type two is qualitative. And so um, that's divided into more subcategories based on um, whether it's a problem with multiplication. So that's type 2A um, or whether it's a difficulty with um, binding. So type 2B, you actually have excessive binding to platelets. Um, and so the platelets get cleared prematurely. And oftentimes those plate- patients have thrombocytopenia. Um, you can have type 2N, which is difficulty binding factor 8. So those patients typically um, can have more hemophilia type bleeding. Um, and then uh, type 2M, you actually have normal multimers um, and just abnormal binding to platelets. So that's type 2, all the different types of type 2, which are all qualitative defects. <laughs> and then type 3 is most severe um, and accounts for you know less than 1% of all cases um, and is just basically you're unable to measure any von Willebrand's factor at all. So it's complete deficiency. And then within type 1, there's also kind of a subtype of type 1C Um, where, again, your BWF is normal, you just don't have enough of it. But the reason you don't have enough is that it's prematurely cleared. Um, And so that's important to know kind of when you're thinking about treatment, because you don't want to, you know, not give them enough factor if it's being cleared more quickly than you anticipate. So how do patients develop 
von Willebrand disease? Is it, uh, is it hereditary? Can it become acquired? What, what are the different ways this happens? Yeah. So um, the majority of von Willebrand's disease is genetic. And so type one is typically autosomal dominant. Um, as you can imagine with type three being very rare, um, it's autosomal recessive. Um, and type two is, uh, most of it is autosomal dominant as well. So most of von Willebrand's disease is autosomal dominant. You can have sporadic mutations. And then there's also acquired von Willebrand's disease, which can be caused by a number of different other conditions. So um, like in pediatrics, we see it in patients who have VADs, where you have kind of shearing and um, loss of the higher molecular weight multimers. Um, but there's a number of different kind of clinical scenarios where you can see acquired von Willebrand's disease. Because it's autosomal dominant, because uh, 70 or 80% is this type 1, presumably there is a varying phenotype and some individuals have more severe disease. Is there any hereditary component of that or any risk factors for who might have more severe disease and who might have less severe disease? Yeah, so there's definitely kind of varying um, levels of deficiency. So um, oftentimes, you know, they're actually with the most recent guidelines that were put out through the American Society of Hematology and like a big, four big international groups got together and um, tried to harmonize like the recommendations for both diagnosis and management. Um, but one of the things they looked at was historically, there's been this like, what do we do with patients in the 30 to 50% range, which is you know not normal. So normal is usually like 50 to 150, depending on your lab, it may be a little bit different from that. Um, but, you know, these patients that have levels in the 30 to 50 range, are they von Willebrand's disease? Or it kind of was like an in-between of like, you're not normal, you might have some risk of bleeding, but we're not really calling you the disease or saying you have the disease. Um, and so um, the most recent guidelines do say that like less than 50 if you have bleeding symptoms is classified as von Willebrand's disease. But there's a huge range there, right? Where like if you have 45% um, levels of VWF compared to if you have 2% levels, those both could be a type 1 von Willebrand's disease, but they're probably going to have very different uh, bleeding phenotypes. Um, and even within that, there's not like a super um, consistent correlation between levels and phenotype. It can be uh, quite different depending on the patient. And since we're on this topic, can you run through the different components that you would check in a von Willebrand panel or even just like in a general workup for, for this patient? Sure. So, um, you know, I think definitely in, if a patient is having nosebleeds, um, in addition to a von Willebrand's panel, I would also get a CBC, you know, and especially in this age range, ITP is also something we consider and not something we want to miss um, by not sending a CBC. But typically a von Willebrand's panel, kind of the basic place that we start, usually will have four components. So it will have a PTT with it, um, a factor eight level because of the chaperone uh, activity of von Willebrand's factor. Um, it will have an antigen level, which is just like the quantity um, of VWF in circulation, and then some type of platelet binding um, assay, which historically has been a um based assay that is used and is most kind of widely available and used, although there are some kind of downsides to using it. Um, and so those four things are kind of where we would typically start. And then if there are abnormalities there, it would kind of lead you to further more specialized testing. Or if there aren't abnormalities there, 
um, but you have you know a high index of suspicion, then you may do more specialized testing as well. And so that von Willebrand, it seems like it's easy. You're kind of assessing the quantitative. So if you're seeing if there's low uh, von Willebrand, and then things like the factor eight, I guess you could see deficiency. Or if you're looking for one of those qualitative deficiencies with the resacetin and the factor eight, makes total sense. I remember vividly in the last episode, I said that I wanted to be a good primary care hematologist and wanted to diagnose von Willebrand and wanted to send these labs off to try to make the diagnosis. And I remember you had some advice. You had you had some yeah. hesitancy in saying that this should be done in a primary care office. Can you talk a little bit about what are the reasons for maybe pushing off doing this von Willebrand panel in the uh, primary care clinic and why that is? Sure. So um, von Willebrand's testing is complex um, and I think difficult because it's affected by a lot of extrinsic factors um, that don't necessarily mean you don't have von Willebrand's disease. Um, so we actually did like a multi-center study looking at patients who had been seen at you know other places and then referred to major academic like tertiary you know referral centers um, and looked at their uh, von Willebrand's testing that was done at places where they had their labs drawn at one place and then it was processed somewhere else and then you know shipped to be tested somewhere else. And so those steps were done separately. And what we found is that those were not very accurate. And so what ends up happening is that it can be inaccurate in either direction. Um, but so either the patient is referred to us, you know, with a diagnosis of Willebrand's disease, and then we um, repeat the testing, which is difficult with insurance because insurance often doesn't want to, you know, pay to repeat the testing, um, and then have to tell the family they don't have Willebrand's disease, or the opposite, where they've been told, no, we've ruled this out. And either they don't get to us, which is problematic, or they do get to us because they're like, we still don't understand why they're bleeding. And then we ultimately diagnose them with von Willebrand's disease, but it can be affected by a lot of things. So um, hormones are one of the biggest ones that I see in my clinic, because especially if you're on higher dose estrogen, um, that can affect your levels and increase them so that someone who has um, especially kind of a milder form of von Willebrand's disease may actually have normal levels while on a higher dose estrogen pill, um, anxiety and like stress increase your levels. So wow. we see this all the time in toddlers, right? So if you hold down a two-year-old to get his labs and he's kicking and screaming, then he's probably elevating his levels uh, quite high. Um, and there's, you know, been things cited to demonstrate that. So that makes it incredibly difficult to, to diagnose toddlers because there aren't many toddlers who are super uh, calm and great with blood draws. Um, but things like exercise. So if you go out and run a marathon and then your VWF levels checked, um, smoking, um, lots of just different things like that that can affect levels. So typically um, it's recommended that um, if you have, you know, a suspicion for von Willebrand's disease that you test multiple times um, and we typically won't diagnose someone just based on one panel, but that can be problematic, especially with payers. So as a as a you know general pediatrician, what do you recommend that we start? Should we just get that CBC looking at platelets? Should we get that uh, you know the get a PTT um, just because you know with the factor eight? I assume that at the very minimum we would probably see it abnormal in the PTT pathway, or can that also throw us off? That also can throw things off. I mean, I think a lot of um, general pediatricians will send like a PT and a PTT just. And anybody that's having bleeding symptoms, 
Um, unfortunately, that's also difficult as, um, so with your PTT with young kids, right, you can have transient lupus anticoagulants that are not uncommon caused by a random viral illness, COVID, for example, <laughs> um, that can prolong your PTT. And so um, the coagulation laboratory, when they're picking their reagents and trying to determine, you know, how sensitive and how specific they want their PTT to be, um, they have to take that into account. And there are different reagents. So, you know, whatever lab you're at is going to have a different normal range for PTT. But with that, at a lot of labs, the PTT won't actually be prolonged for like mild deficiencies of factor levels. And so you actually, if you just are screening with like a PTT, you could miss a mild factor eight deficiency or a mild factor nine deficiency or a mild factor 11 deficiency. Um, so I think that as a general pediatrician, the best advice I can give is to just try to get, you know, as good of a bleeding history as you can. And there are things like tools online, even that you can have the patients do themselves, like a self-bleeding assessment tool. It's called a self-bat. If you Google it, you can probably find it. There are websites um, that you can kind of go through and just like put in symptoms. But if you're concerned, um, then they probably just need to be referred to hematology because there's other testing that we would typically do in a patient like this, like platelet function testing, um, that at least within my system and I think many others, non-hematologists aren't even able to order. And is there any kind of relationship between like the blood type of a patient and their von Willebrand factor levels? Yeah, so there is correlation with blood types. And it used to be that people kind of interpreted them based on a blood type, but that really, um, especially in the newest guidelines, is not necessarily recommended that it should just be a level regardless of whatever blood type. And one other lab that I feel like I always get on any bleeding history, and I think we talked about this last time, is an iron and ferritin to check for iron deficiency. Is that a reasonable? I feel like there's all these studies that show that there's some cognitive deficits if you're iron deficient. My heart just grew like 10 sizes. I I appreciate it. I'm so overwhelmed with happiness that you said that. I I don't even know if I can go on right now. It's amazing. Uh, Yes. Please do that. Please check iron. Please check ferritin. So the cupase reactant. So if they have other things going on, you may need other testing. But yes, iron studies is a great idea. Excellent, love it. Uh, so You're what, an what other hematologist? All right. <laughs> what like what other studies? Like a soluble transferrin receptor or something? Yeah, that's usually what I send if I um, am worried. Um, but it is important to remember that that can be elevated in other conditions like thalassemia. It's basically just kind of a marker of ineffective erythropoiesis, and so. Um, it's not so good for differentiating. What about yeah. zinc protoporphyrin? I feel like we're going on kind of a not yes. a good one. I know we're going I've down a, a rabbit hole. Got it. Uh, I've never sent it. That's a big X. It's <laughs> too bad. I really but had a lot of That's not to say like there's, there's no utility in it. I just haven't sent it. Fair enough. I'm sure that some people right. just like it. We'll cross that off the list. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we move on with the rest. Let's case? keep going. We're not ordering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hit it, Claire. We're, well, these are the labs that the patient got at their at her hematologist appointment, not at her primary care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she has a normal hemoglobin of thirteen, normal platelets at two hundred fifty thousand. Um, her PT and PTT are all within normal limits, but her von Willebrand factor antigen level and von Willebrand factor activity are twenty five percent, and her factor eight level is like low normal. So how would you interpret those numbers and? How do you classify her into the types of von Willebrand disease? 
Yeah. So um, when we look at those numbers, um, we use a ratio. And so um, you take the antigen. And so basically, if you think about type one disease, right, you have a quantitative defect. And so you have not enough von Willebrand's factor, but with that, you have analogous, like symmetric decrease also in the binding activity. So you should have like kind of similar decreases in both of them. And so when we type into type one, usually right in this situation, it's type one or type two, because clearly they have some von Willebrand's factor. Um, and so we would take the activity over the antigen. And if it is the ratio typically is 0.7 where the cutoff is. Um, and so that has historically been at varying levels, but the most recent guidelines um, have decided a cutoff of 0.7. So you want it to be above 0.7 to have like a type one. And so in this case, since it's 25 and 25, it's just one. So it's clearly a type one patient. Um, but if it was less than 0.7, so say it was like the activity, um, the RISO was like 10%. And then the antigen was like 25%, then clearly, you know, that's less than 0.7. And that would be a type two patient. Um, but you would need to do additional testing to determine what type of type two. And so just to clarify, the antigen level is as a percent, as you mentioned, that is that the activity per von Willebrand antigen, and then the resuscitin or the other activity level? They're all percents. They're all but percent. Then, so like the ratio... Like you don't even have to, you can just like knock off the percents when you're doing the ratio. And so I guess if, how do you, if for a type one patient where they just have a low von Willebrand quantitative, I would think that the percentages would be good, right? They would, the activity would be normal and the activity per well, antigen would be normal. Well, so the, so the activity is low just because it's like the kind of total activity, Right. And so if you have like less von Willebrand's factor, then you have less platelet binding. So they're like symmetrically decreased together, right? I see. So like the Versus like if the activity is much lower than the antigen, then you know like, okay, I and sometimes like the antigen may be normal in type 2 patients where maybe you have 50% antigen or whatever, but then your activity, right? Because it's like you may have a normal amount of it, but it's just not binding. Okay. So maybe... Uh, I admit I'm I'm lost. In the, let's ha what's a typical type one result, and then what's a typical type <laughs> okay, two result? Yeah. So a typical yeah, type yeah. I, one I result is like what she she presented. So you have like basically equivalent that are both low. So twenty five percent, twenty five percent, or you could have it can be anything above point seven, right? So it could be twenty and twenty five percent. Like it's just they're they're like close to one another, right? It's the but ratio then, between the two percentages, right? Exactly. If that's one, then we're at type one. Yeah. If you have it like less than 0.7, then it's type two. So it could be, it can be like super discrepant. And the issue is, and this kind of gets to like, the system isn't perfect, is that like we have patients who one day their ratio might be 0.73. And then the next time when we test them, their ratio is 0.65. So one day they're type one and one day they're type two, right? So it's imperfect, but really, when you're treating them, it doesn't so much matter. And for the absolute value for the von Willebrand factor, like antigen and activity is 50% the cutoff that you use for both of mm -hmm. them. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Sorry, so the percentages of the with the like values is like, not so helpful, I feel. 
and some some labs actually pr- report them in different units than that. But but so the ratio is the biggest thing. The ratio between the, the ratio. percentages is the biggest thing. I'm going to try to do <laughs> some uh, some teach back. So in this patient, where the antigen level percentage is 25 percent and the activity level is 25 percent, and therefore the ratio is one, uh, we f- can say that. Uh, there is no qualitative deficit because the ratio is one, but because these percentages are under 50%, that there is a quantitative deficit or a type one von Willebrand. Is that yeah. reasonable? Excellent. And then the other lab that we have is factor eight. And we're going to say that the, the level is low normal, which is always my favorite when the resin says low normal, because you can pick the one that you want to interpret. Can you talk about this factor eight level? And then maybe also, is this a factor eight absolute, like the number of factor eight, or are we checking a factor eight activity level? What are we checking when we're checking a factor eight and how do we interpret it maybe in this patient? Yeah. So typically with von Willebrand's disease, you know, we'll send the, the factor eight level, which is just your your factor eight that you know the number your body the number yeah. um <laughs> eight eight molecules of factor eight hopefully more than that um and you know i think you know some people would say okay if you have a low we're going to go with low instead of normal i'm going to pick low out of the two since you told me i had a choice that well maybe this guy has hemophilia a and von willebrand's disease right there have been crazier things um, but typically you can tell, um, and the people who are interpreting like your coagulation studies in the lab can tell that, um, based on like your VWL levels, that that's like a reasonable decrease just based on the fact that your VWF is low enough. It's not stabilizing your factor eight as well as it normally would be. So it's being cleared, um, and degraded prematurely. So we don't really look at it a ton. Um, if it is, really low, then typically that means your VWF is also very low. And so um, it is something that, you know, they may be more at risk for more hemophilia type bleeding, but it's not something that for most patients is clinically all that helpful. But we would expect it to be a little bit low or low normal because if you had a low von Willebrand, either qualitatively or quantitatively, you're going to be degrading that factor eight more quickly than typical. Yes. Although um, I will say, I shouldn't say it's not totally relevant. It can kind of factor into our treatment decisions if we're using um, factor concentrates, because there are some that have factor eight and some that don't have factor eight. Um, And although usually you have kind of a similar decrease in factor eight to like the decrease that you have in VWF, um, there are patients, for example, uh, patients with vasculitis, can have really high levels of factor eight, or if you have a lot of ongoing inflammation for other reasons, you can have really elevated factor eight. And so um, I think about it like with fibrinogen and DIC, right? It's not that helpful because if you have a ton of inflammation or rip-roaring infection, right? You have this acute phase reactant that goes up really high. And even if you're degrading it more quickly, it still may not be low, right? So same thing for factor eight, where um, we do have patients with von Willebrand's disease, even more severe von Willebrand's disease, but because they have kind of other ongoing processes increasing their baseline factor eight, that it doesn't actually get down go down that low. To a noticeable amount. That makes sense. This is this is also making so much sense of why we're sending them to the hematologist for the uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. brand panel. 
But this is great. These are great nuances of the lab, so I'm glad we're getting into it. So say I'm a peds resident and I'm, I'm working in the ED and we have this patient come in with bleeding and we're trying all the compression, all the right things to stop nose bleeding. And we know we know this patient has history of, and we, we think they have von Willebrand's disease based on previous workup. Well, how do I treat this? Do I give them desmopressin and then deal with their hyponatremia? Just call ENT just sleep. It's fine. <laughs> ENT loves the nose bleed. Um, yeah, so typically when we diagnose patients, um, especially historically when we had desmo, like intranasal desmopressin available, then in a patient like this, when they got diagnosed with von Willebrand's disease, we would do um, a desmopressin or a DDADP challenge to see if they respond to desmopressin to know if that would be a good option for them. Um, and it was, especially since it was intranasal, actually very effective for um, nosebleeds in a lot of our patients, but unfortunately is not uh, currently commercially available. So that has been a big bummer for those patients who respond to desmopressin or DDADP. But if you knew, if this, if this patient was like just diagnosed and never had a desmopressin trial, you could try that and see, you know, what happens. Um, but ideally, they would have had a, a desmopressin trial at some point. Otherwise, if you're, you know, really concerned, you could use um, a factor concentrate, um, either with or without factor eight. There are also ways that you can use like antifibrinolytics topically. So some people will use like the liquid form of them and, and do it topically, or you can do um, similar to like, it's like an aerosolized intranasal lysteta you can get. Um, as well that can be helpful. I'm sorry, tranexamic acid. <laughs> so can we roll back a little bit about desmopressin? I, I don't understand how this works. Don't we use desmopressin like enuresis and all these other things? Like how does this have to do with von Willebrand's disease? Yeah, it's a crazy drug and it's very, very different dosing for enuresis and for von Willebrand's disease. So von Willebrand's disease and mild hemophilia can both be treated with desmopressin. Um, which is a vasopressin analog and basically um, just causes release of your endogenous VWF and factor eight stores. So obviously because it requires endogenous, you know, release of your endogenous stores, it is not going to be helpful in someone with type three because you don't have any endogenous stores. Similarly for hemophilia, if you have severe hemophilia A, it's not going to cause any release of factor eight, no matter how much you give. Um, so it's only going to be useful in those patients that have some VWF to be released because you're counting on your own endogenous VWF. And if you have type two, which your VWF is not working properly, that's kind of the thought behind it not being as effective in type two. Um, but that's not really universal. Many hematologists use it in type two. Um, you just kind of want to, you know, see that it actually works um, before you use it in like a higher risk situation. There is like, if you ever had that on the boards or, you know, on a um, test, the biggest contraindication would be type 2B, um, where if you remember type 2B, you have too much binding of your VWF to platelets. And so if you release a bunch of your endogenous VWF that is going to bind all your platelets, it can cause a further drop in your platelets and um, actually cause more bleeding. Um, so that's something that typically we don't use it in those patients, but it has been used by hematologists in those patients and can be, it's just not typically. 
So for those that it works on, is it is it a one and done? Like after you give it, you've released all your stores and you can't do it again? Or can you both dose it multiple times? So yeah, you can get tachyphylaxis where at some point, right, you've released all that you have and you have to make more <laughs> before it will work again. So typically when we use it, we limit it to like three days in a row. So it can be dosed daily and but after that third day, you're probably not going to get any further response. Um, and we typically um, wait till kids are three or older to use it, really, because there is a risk of hyponatremia, which can cause seizures, and as you know, it causes you to retain water. And this seems like this would make a lot of sense in the acute setting when someone's bleeding and you're kind of squeezing out the extra von Willebrand factor. Is the desmopressin challenge, is that something that you would do in an outpatient setting before there's active bleeding? And could you walk us through what that is? Yes. So that is something we would do in an outpatient setting. Um, so especially when it was more readily available, um, if someone had a new diagnosis um, of type 1 or you know a lot of the types of type 2, we would typically schedule them to come in and they would get like their baseline set of labs. So the PTT and factor 8 and um, antigen and the platelet binding assay. And then we would give them um, a dose of desmopressin that was appropriate for their size. And the nice thing is, is that um, like for the intranasal form, there's just two doses, like one if you're less than 50 kilos and one if you're greater. And it's like one nose spray or two nose sprays. So it's very easy to remember. <laughs> so you would give them their um, desmopressin. And then um, typically we would check an hour later um, and then additionally like four hours later. Um, and the four hours is looking for that type 1C where you have premature clearance. So in those patients, you would see a nice response where your levels go up really nicely as all the endogenous VWF is released. But then at that four hours, you would see it drop back down. Um, and so in those patients, it's helpful to know that because in most patients, we'd give it to them and then think, okay, you're kind of set for the next day. Um, but clearly, if you're dropping down after four hours, that's not going to be safe. And so for some patients, they respond well and don't drop and other patients drop. Does so some not patients respond, don't respond at all. Yeah, exactly. So some patients don't respond at all. Some patients respond and stay up and then some patients respond and then fall back down. And so this is helpful. So if you're admitting a patient to a service, for example, and has von Willebrand disease, rather than just saying this is a 12-year-old with von Willebrand disease, it sounds like if the type is known, that can be very helpful to try to understand what's going on and the results of a outpatient desmopressin to see if that is something that would be a reasonable treatment for acute bleeding. Is that, yes. is that yes. reasonable? Yeah. And, you know, I think in kids, we're always very cognizant of like, that's three blood draws, which is a lot. And the family has to come and they're there for probably five hours and that stinks. And so, um, you know, there are some patients where we, you know, if you, if you don't need it for like a procedure or surgery or something, we may use it. Like, for example, in this patient, if they came in, they have type one, the vast majority of type one patients do respond to it. She's having nosebleeds. You could prescribe the intranasal when it was available and then see, right? So then when she gets a nosebleed, then she does her sprays. And then, you know, you can get a sense from the family if that's resolving things more quickly than um, without because um, that's really you know all you need and you can have more of like a clinical challenge um, just to see how it's working for their symptoms. And how are you giving it now if the intranasal isn't available? So there's an IV formulation, which is obviously not um, optimal, especially because 
Um, the nice thing when it was available is that like patients could go, for example, to have their dental procedure and they could do the intranasal wherever they are versus they, you know, most of our patients aren't infusing at home. Um, and so problematic. There are also, um, are some people that use it subcutaneously. There's like some different compounding pharmacies that are trying to work on different formulations, but there's not a great option. What what happened to the intranasal form? Was there was it a manufacturing thing or was it a safety thing? Yeah. Do we do we ever expect this to come back on market? So it will have to be a different company. So um, what happened is um, years ago now um, they had a recall um, and it was something about the concentration was off and so this is something though that we've used for ever. Um, and so all of a sudden the concentration was off and they said, okay, but it's not going to be fixed or available. First it was, you know, a year. And then it was two years. And it was like, this all seems very odd because we've used this forever. And can't you just fix the concentration to where it was? Um, and then eventually um, the distributor said, we're no longer going to make this. So I think it was just probably not profitable. One thing as far as acute treatment, uh, to kind of maybe close the loop on that, the you mentioned several different blood products um, that you might give at different times, things like maybe with or without factor eight. Are there specific blood products that you're typically going to in a von Willebrand's patient that you wouldn't for another patient that's bleeding? Yeah, so there are specific factor concentrates. So um, there's a number of different you know brand ones um, that are plasma derived and those all um, have both BWF and factor eight. So the challenge with those is if you have someone, for example, who has low BWF levels, but has, you know, another reason that their factor eight is sky high is that you're replacing something you don't really need to replace. And unfortunately we know that if you get to factor eight levels above 250 or above 300, that's a risk factor for thrombosis. So you can kind of set up patients to have a problem if you're giving them a bunch of factor eight they don't need. Um, there is one um, recombinant product that's available in the United States um, that is just von Willebrand's factor um, without any factor eight in it. So that's can be a good option for patients if they have really high factor eight levels to begin with, um, where you're not giving them a bunch of factor eight. But it's important um, when you are giving whatever you are are giving to know, you know, if there is factor eight in it, but also um, the plasma derived products all have pretty significantly different ratios of how much BWF to factor eight that they have in them. Um, and so if, for example, you know, somebody comes in on X product that is, you know, a brand name plasma derived product, um, and they usually get, you know, whatever dose that they've gotten previously, if your hospital doesn't have that, it may be a different dose that they need based on the fact that the the ratio of the the two things in the product are different. Interesting. Is it just completely individualized for for the patient based on like what what's been tried before for their bleeding or does a hematologist try to tailor that based on some of those labs that we've done? So I would say, you know, most of our patients because so many of them fall into that type 1 and you know don't need like prophylaxis and are just being treated kind of episodically for bleeding or prior to surgeries or procedures, um, when we use like the factor concentrates, whether they're plasma derived or recombinant, oftentimes it's what the hospital that they're going to has on 
formulary. So you just have to kind of look at it and, you know, make sure that you know the dosing, you know, for that particular one, which is readily available in Lexicomp or whatever, you know, pharma tool you use at your hospital. Um, But really, that's typically what it's based on. I think, you know, for the patients who are on uh, prophylaxis or, um, you know, are using it more frequently than and more in an outpatient setting, then, you know, it's more of a choice. But oftentimes, you're probably going to be limited by what your hospital has in stock. And which patients do you usually decide to put on prophylaxis? Yeah, so that was um, actually our first um, recommendation on the management guideline panel was for prophylaxis. Um, And basically, that's for patients that have kind of severe recurrent bleeding. So patients that, you know, type 3 patients are at risk for joint bleeding um, and can get hemarthrosis and joint damage that, you know, will affect them for their entire life. So oftentimes those patients require prophylaxis to prevent um, joint bleeding. Um, patients from with more severe types of Brand's disease, um, DWF is actually important in like angiogenesis as well. And so you can get angiodysplasia in your GI tract and have bad GI bleeding that is very, very difficult to treat. Um, so those patients typically will be, if you have GI bleeding from BWD, then um, you will typically be on an extended course of prophylaxis to try to prevent that from occurring. Um, a lot of people who menstruate will be on, you know, monthly prophylaxis um, if their menstruation is not amenable to, you know, hormones or other things but typically the most severe patients. And it's definitely not as common as hemophilia. We don't have as good of studies showing the benefit as we do in hemophilia. Um, and there's probably a lot of patients out there that may benefit from prophylaxis, but it's just not as um, much of a part of people's practice. And sorry, I might be an idiot here, but the, as far as the prophylaxis, is that um, von Willebrand factor? Is that or what, what, that's yeah. what you're giving for? And that's yeah. on just a regular basis, like a monthly infusion or... So it actually, so um, that is, is difficult as well, where um, ground factor half-life is not all that long. And so um, if you really want someone covered, it's, you know, similar to hemophilia A and that you have, would have to do multiple infusions a week to really have good coverage all of the time. So that that is difficult. And um, the recombinant product has a slightly longer half-life. So sometimes if we're thinking about for like a young woman with heavy menstrual bleeding. Most of these patients also, you know, are not like our severe hemophilia patients that learn to infuse very early on in their life. And so um, it's working with, you know, some home med company or something to get a visiting nurse or, you know, teaching the family or whatnot. Um, So sometimes if you can get the extended, little bit extended half-life with the recombinant factor product, that can sometimes be helpful to, to decrease, but it's not much of a decrease. So it is challenging. Let's say while you're in the clinic, Willow's parents are worried about what this diagnosis really means for her future. And so can you just ask, you know, how do you counsel parents about von Willebrand's disease? Are there medications you have to avoid? Can she play sports? Is she going to need clearance before surgeries? Do siblings need to be screened? What's the general approach of how does this affect uh, her life going forward or the, or the rest of her family? Yeah, so I usually, um, you know, tell families that it's important to know if you have any bleeding disorder, um, but mainly for 
episodic reasons. So for example, if she got into a horrible car accident or if she needed a big procedure, then we would treat her differently. Um, But otherwise, you know, the vast majority of the care is episodic in terms of treating specific symptoms. So for example, you know, if she was having unilateral nosebleeds and we found she had a superficial vessel, she could go get cauterized by ENT and that may resolve the issue. Or if we had intranasal uh, desmopressin that was effective for her, that hopefully would resolve the issue. Um, But really it's just kind of symptom-based and then episodic prophylaxis for most patients. They really, you know, can do most everything that other kids can do. We don't usually recommend things like football or boxing or hockey um, just because of concern about bleeding in their head. But I don't really think anyone should box as a hematologist. I don't know, getting punched in the face seems like a bad idea, but that's just me. So yeah, so I think, you know, mainly it's a lot of education around, you know, when to call us. So yes, she will need surgical clearance for everything, including just, you know, teeth being pulled. I think sometimes people underestimate how much bleeding can occur with dental procedures and really serious bleeding. I remember um, talking, we have a dental hygienist who is part of our comprehensive multidisciplinary clinic. Um, And I'm always amazed she'll come up with like, well, yeah, because, you know, if you use this type of block, you know, thinking about anesthetic, then you can have airway um, hemorrhage and tamponade. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) Right. And so that's terrifying. So Um, We do instruct patients, you know, to contact us prior to any procedures or surgeries. Um, We do get our patients medical alert bracelets so that, you know, if they were to get into a car accident, um, that our number's on there and that, um, you know, the appropriate treatment for them is is listed on there as well. Um, Typically with families, um, I typically try to get a sense of, you know, if patients are having any, you know, kinds of symptoms. It is difficult with kids because, Oftentimes, if you are a boy, you know, you may not have any sign of it. It, You know, you don't have menstruation uh, to go through that might signal that you have an underlying bleeding disorder. Or if you're a girl and you haven't menstruated yet, you know, that also, it can be difficult to know if you have abnormal bleeding. But typically, we'll try to get a sense of it. And if there's any reason to test at that point, like it may be they've never had anything, but they're going in for a tonsillectomy. And in that case, I would recommend they get screened prior to a big procedure like that. So pre-procedurally for those patients who say did have a desmopressin challenge and worked well, would you ever treat prior to procedure? Like, I feel like, like when I was a resident, it was always like, you know, a kid who needed an LP, like, do I need to give him DDAVP before I I do the LP? Yeah. I always, I mean, I think that, um, generally in those cases, um, there's not like a big downside to treating, right. If you know, they respond well, um, and, you know, we do counsel patients when they're using desmopressin on, on fluid restriction so that we avoid hyponatremia. Um, but I think especially when you think about the downsides to like bleeding around your spine, that, that probably for um, most patients, it makes sense to treat prior to things like that. And how about NSAIDs? Can they take ibuprofen? Yeah, great question. So obviously, you know, aspirin and SEDs all have antiplatelet effects. Um, we tend to counsel patients to avoid them if they can. So, you know, Tylenol would be the go-to for pain relief. But um, I do have a number of patients that have mild bone deliverance disease that I follow that, um, you know, have whatever symptom, whether it's migraines or really bad dysmenorrhea, um, that don't tend to respond to Tylenol. And so, you know, I counsel them on 
what the NSAIDs or aspirin is going to do to your platelets. But um, I think one-offs, especially if it means you're not miserable, you know, you have to work with the patient. Excellent. Um, I think this has been great. You know, uh, we've touched on a lot uh, for this episode from the common presentations to the complicated labs and how to diagnose to different treatments for both acute and prophylaxis and counseling. Um, are there, is there anything that we missed or what, you know, what are the big take-home points that you want our listeners to make sure they leave this episode with after talking about von Willebrand's disease? I think just to kind of have a low index of suspicion, right? So it is the most common bleeding disorder if you look at all people. Um, and I'm constantly surprised. Like I remember seeing a patient years and years and years ago where they came in and just had one bruise and it was on their chest, which is kind of a weird place to get a bruise. And there was no history of trauma. And it was kind of an impressive bruise. But it was like one bruise, right? And they were in the single digit years old. And I was like, I don't know. I hate poking kids and there's no family history. And they their levels were horrible. They were very low and they have, you know, um, more bleeding now, but I think, you know, especially for someone like that, um, although I do hate poking kids, I think that, um, you know, it does present in different ways. And if you don't have a good explanation for a symptom, whether it's, you know, petechiae when they, every time they get a cold or a bruise on their chest, I think it still just warrants workup. And anything that you'd like to plug, you, we haven't, you're, you're an influencer for us. So this is, you know, this is a big deal for us. Uh, is there anything other than your wonderful tutorials that I would love to plug for, for listeners, anything else we should send our listeners to, to check out or to, to learn more about Von Willebrand disease or things you're into? I mean, I think, you know, ASH and NHF, WFH and ISTH put out the guidelines um, back in 2021, and they actually have done a really nice job putting together educational materials. Um, so you can probably find those on the ASH website if you, you know, have questions that come up about von Willebrand's disease. Um, there's in multiple different languages and different um, kind of formats uh, to try to educate people about at least what the guidelines cover. I think it's hysterical. You called me an influencer. Yeah, I mean, you. You're, I'm trying you're, to get people to send me candy, and it's working out actually. Wow, <laughs> nice. That's it. how. You, that's that's, that's the, the only of kind of influencer, influencer I want to be is the one that gets free candy. That's that's the, <laughs> that's the right type of influencer. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you again for uh, joining us as a repeat guest. We love having you on, and uh, it's always very humbling to learn about some of the complicated components of uh, the net steps for some of these hematological disorders. And this is this has been very insightful and I think really, really helpful. So thank you for sharing your time and expertise and, and for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Clara Mao, our executive producer for the episode, Dr. Nick Lee, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I'm Clara Mao. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you, and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. 
now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.